This morning, in terms of our worship, we began our six weeks Lenten journey called Away into Joy. It will end on Palm Sunday, which will begin our Passion Week services as we make our way to Easter. And during this journey, we are looking at the ways that we can recover our sense of joy in life and our place in God's joyful kingdom. Joy is one of those interesting subjects that is hard to pin down. It springs from the soul. It's not like happiness, which is skin deep. It's shallow. But joy is soul deep. It cannot be achieved or owned or managed or earned or bought or even contained. I love that William Blake poem, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged, that is the fleeting, does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise which is to say that joy comes to us as a gift from God, like the Holy Spirit, and is in fact a fruit of the Spirit. But there are things that we can do to open ourselves up to receiving it. And the first for this Sunday's theme is confession. An honest and truthful admission of the things that we have done or not done that separate us from ourselves and from each other and finally with God. Now while we may want to avoid such painful honesty about ourselves at all costs, the fact is that until we do confront that part of ourselves, it costs us all in terms of joy. King David from whom our psalm will spring this morning, had it all, but he wanted more. The commandment says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Yet he looked over his railing and saw Bathsheba bathing in a a house next to his mansion and sent his servants to bring her up to him while he knew her husband was in battle, a war that David had been fighting. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. She was with child, soon to be discovered. David knew he was the father. She knew David was the father. Yet uh, Uriah, her husband, did not. And so when he came home, it began the first Uriah gate story. David began the cover-up and sent Uriah back out into a battle that he knew would take his life. At that point, Nathan, the prophet of the king, came to see David and confronted him with the truth. From that confrontation, tradition holds that this morning's scripture, Psalm 51, was born. David laments, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I know that it's against you, you alone, that I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being, O God. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors their ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be honest, since that's the name of the sermon. None of us are good at confessing our sins, nor do we want to. Studies have shown that churches who start their service with a prayer of confession generally have less percentage of their congregants come to worship as those who do not. When it comes to owning up to our own stuff, we had rather not go there. I'll own up to yours, thank you. I don't want to own up to mine. I remember meeting a man in a previous church who had been imprisoned for embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars as a trustee of a trust that he was responsible for. I went to see him in jail, and he was indeed repentant. He was sorry, but he was not sorry for stealing the money. He was sorry that he had gotten caught and that he had hired such a terrible lawyer to represent him. As long as I knew him, he never could admit, at least publicly, I guess the shame was too great. Yet honest confession is, as they say, good for the soul. It is as hard as it is. It is good for us. Jesus said, I am the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's true. But the truth hurts like heck before we get there. 
until we have been washed by the waters of confession and forgiveness, our spiritual arteries are blocked by self-loathing, deceit, guilt, and misery. Life becomes a weight too heavy to carry a burden rather than a light-hearted enjoyment. The promise of this confession is that if we receive God's love and forgiveness and get on our knees in confession, then we will also be willing or able to receive the joy of God's restoration. The promise at the end of confession is always joy. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. You desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in, your, in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Why? To let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. As painful as these words are, let's not miss the hope that joy is at the end of it. David was riding high until his prophet Nathan came and revealed what he had done. Every king in the day of Israel had their prophet. The prophet was the truth teller. They were there to remind those in power that they were not sovereign nor righteous, that only God was. In fact, the prophet was the 60 minutes of those days. And if they showed up at your door, you better start squirming. Why is it that too often, unless we are caught, confession will never pass our lips? Even then, when we do confess, to be honest... We don't really fully do it, at least publicly, I think. If you're a person of some notoriety, a glitterate, or of power, usually if we are caught, we will hire some clever PR firm or lawyer to help reduce the damage. I think about the public mea culpas recently and how they have managed to mitigate their own blame while casting blame on something or something else. I'm still not sure what Tiger Woods confessed to or who he blamed. I never did quite understand it. A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez, has confessed that it was a placebo that got him in trouble. Brian Williams blamed conflating two stories And each in their own way, we're trying to satisfy, I think, the public thirst for blood and sacrifice while also saving face. When it comes to public honesty and confession, we don't have many role models. I remember watching Jimmy Swaggart after being caught in an indiscretion stand before a live television audience, owning up to every single Uh, uh, act that he had been accused of with giant crocodile tears rolling down his cheeks. And it was painful to watch, but to be quite honest, I had a sort of skeptical suspicion that was still all part of the show. Honest confession is hard to come by 
These days we can just say, of course, mea culpa, is a kind of apology which sort of claims responsibility but sounds a little bit like a dodge, or my bad, which is the greatest face saver of all, which is not really a confession, but instead a statement that really means, okay, I messed up, let's just get on with life, my bad. Maybe we're just not meant to make public confessions where we open up our souls in front of the television cameras because of the television lynch mob mentality that erupts from even the best of us, demanding a car wreck of complete annihilation and humiliation of the one who is confessing which, in all honesty, says something about us and our need for confession, too. What is it about us that loves reality television to watch the Kardashians and their total depravity that fuels us to enjoy watching the big and tall and strong fall, that if they fall, we, in comparison, are not so bad? That their unrighteousness seems to make us more righteous? Take the deflate gate debacle. If you don't know, it was right before the Super Bowl. How could you not know? But it was, it was a story that the Patriots had deflated their footballs by a pound or so during their game with Green Bay. Some of the lynch mob call for Tom Brady and Bill Belichick to quit their jobs. Some even called, some reporters even said that the Patriots should not even show up for the Super Bowl. They should be so ashamed. Now that it has become clear that neither Brady nor Belichick had anything to do with it, all those lynch mob people just melted away very few claiming their own mea culpa about it. Why is that so often the case? The fact is that mob mentality doesn't really want truth and honesty, but a pound of flesh, a scapegoat, is sacrificed, and then we find our satisfaction waiting for the next need for a pound of flesh and scapegoat. And what gets lost in all of this is the honest truth that we are just as guilty in our self-righteous indignation as they are in their public confessional display for their sins. David Brooks said in an article two weeks ago, there's something in Brian Williams' need to puff up his Iraq adventures that is sad and something barbaric in the public response. The barbaric part is the way we respond to public scandal these days. A sort of Colosseum culture takes over, leaving no place for mercy. By now, the script is familiar. Some famous person does something wrong. The Internet, the most impersonal of mediums, erupts with contempt and mockery. The offender issues a paltry half-apology, which only inflames the public more. The pounding cry for resignation builds until capitulation comes. The public passion is spent and the spotlight moves on. 
It goes on to say, I think we'd all be better off if we reacted to these sorts of scandals in a different way. The civic fabric would be stronger if, instead of trying to sever relationships with those who have done wrong, we tried to repair them. If we tried forgiveness instead of exiling. Now, that's a novel thought. I think I remember the Bible saying something about that. What did we want Brian Williams to say? I have lied to you about being under a rocky fire. I made the story up because I suffered a narcissistic wounding in my childhood, and no matter how much adoration I receive, it is not enough. I wanted to make sure that we stayed ahead in the ratings so that our newscast would continue to be a profitable platform for big farm commercials. We know he made the story up for his own benefit, and as a public official, as a news person in the limelight, a media person, he must be held accountable. He owes us something. But he does not owe us everything. He does not owe us the full truth and nothing but the truth. He does not owe us complete disclosure. Why do we need that? I'm beginning to believe it's only God that he, they, we need to disclose to completely. And in the end, it is only God's merciful forgiveness that frees us from the bondage of our sin and moves us into joyful restoration. This is why we do confession in worship, by the way. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, though my fault, though my fault, though my grievous fault was born in the 11th century church, became a part of the Latin mass known as the confession, and is meant to remind us that as we come into worship and stand before God, that we have a sacrifice acceptable to God, and it is not a bloodletting And it is not a scapegoat, but it is instead a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, which God will not despise. We do the same thing here in our prayer of confession right after the first hymn. Our prayers vary. Some are composed to be very general prayers. This morning I used basically the wording from our psalm. Some are non-specific, non-particular. Nobody really gets their noses out of joint when they're general liturgical prayers. We can all relate to them. We all plug in there a little bit, or everyone does. But it is something entirely different when we get too specific with those prayers of confession. I remember a a student from seminary who was also our youth director while a student there. When she preached, she would always write these prayers of confession that would make you squirm like, oh God, forgive us for the four wool coats we own in our closets when our homeless neighbors have not one. And another particular prayer I still remember, forgive us for installing our new ovens and kitchen cabinets when a billion people in the world 
have nothing to eat. People would come up to me, of course, not her, afterward and complain. Why does she have to be so specific? I haven't installed any kitchen cabinets in my house. What is she talking about? Missing the point. When it comes to confessions, at least in public, it's probably best not to get too personal. Besides, I always had a feeling that my friend seminary student was a little self-righteous about her own impoverishment, scapegoating the wealthy as a result. I hate that word, righteousness. I think it's more destructive than all of the infidelities and acts of violence that have been imposed. Because you see, evil understands that when he wants to make its greatest stand, it will always do so clothed in righteousness. Righteousness. I keep coming back to this term from David, a contrite heart. What, what is acceptable to God? A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. And it doesn't mean shame, and it doesn't mean complete humiliation and complete unraveling. We can go far, too far, I think, in our woe-as-me confession. Are we really as bad as David says? I mean, when you're in the midst of feeling your bones are broken and you have been found out and caught, you do speak hyperbolically. I know it feels like the world is coming to an end, but indeed I was born guilty, a sinner in my mother's womb? Or is it just his flamboyant emotional expression of how he feels at the moment Sometimes when we commit a sin, it's overbearing. But the fact is that we were not born guilty, a sinner in our mother's womb. We were born in the image of God. For if we were born guilty and a sinner in our mother's womb, then we are not guilty of anything because we're just being ourselves. We cannot be held responsible for that. The fact is that we are born in the image of God and we are held responsible to living up to that. To wallow in our own guilt like this is just as dishonest, I think, as denying it. Not humiliation, but humility. The way into joy begins with this humbleness, this broken contrition the sense of humility that we are honest enough with ourselves that we are not God and that we do not have the ultimate truth that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God that we are limited in our understanding about ourselves, others, and especially God that we do not know all of the political answers and our side is not always right. We first have to own up to that and claim it as an act of humility. Humility, I think, is the opposite of righteousness. That grandiose, narcissistic idea that I know more than anyone else in the whole world and that I am right and you are wrong and that, and that you see, now that I'm righteous, I don't need confession. I mean, what do I have to confess? 
I had the thought the other day, uh, while dwelling on the evil of ISIS, that the powers of evil love, as I said, to dress up in the clothes of righteousness. That either-or, black-and-white thinking that thinks it knows the truth over all people. It's easy to move from that righteousness to the place where I am godly and you are Satan. And I think I can make the case that this kind of righteousness has been responsible for every act of religious violence in the history of humanity. And that ISIS is the latest scary example. Either you think like them, you act like them, you become them, or you are satanic and you die. Certainty is the opposite of faith and trust and love and hope. Certainty is the enemy dressed up in righteousness, and it leads always in the end to the eradication of those we are certain are the enemy. As Pogo said, friends, we've met the enemy, it's us. We are all of us guilty of either unrighteous behavior or righteous judgment. In which case, then, who are we to judge? So if it's joy we are after, it begins on our knees in confession when we own up to God honestly, humbly, offering our sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart in the trust and faith that God will have mercy on us. That according to God's steadfast love, we will have our transgressions blotted out and that we will be washed clean from our iniquity and our sin. The end result? The way into joy. And it begins on our knees. But it ends in the restoration into the joyful kingdom of God. Thanks be to God who gives us the means through which we can discover who we are and whose we are in Christ's name. Amen.